You're listening to Episode 1 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the story of the Golden Age Superman. Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and joining me for this inaugural episode is Chris Franklin from the Supermates Podcast. How are you, Chris? I'm doing good, Ron. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm just thrilled that you're here. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. I think this is a great idea for a podcast, and I wish I thought of it first, but I'm, I'm, it's in good hands. So <laughs> I appreciate it. I, I certainly hope so. And I imagine that many of my listeners will be coming to the show either because they've heard my other podcasts, the Star Wars podcast called Dead Boffin Spies, or my Black Canary podcast, Flowers and Fishnets, or some of them might have been coming here through you, Chris, through the Supermates podcast that you co-host with your wife, Cindy, or maybe the Power Records episodes that you do with Rob Kelly over at the Fire and Water podcast. And it's possible, however unlikely, that some of my listeners might be coming into this show with no real idea of what Secret Origins is. So for those of you who don't know... Secret Origins was a series published by DC Comics that ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990. The series also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And none of them star Aquaman. <laughs> Sorry, Rob. Sorry, man. So. But today, as befitting the first episode of this podcast, Chris and I are going to be reviewing the first issue of Secret Origins, which tells the story of the Golden Age Superman. And now, Chris, I don't know if this has ever come up before on your own show, but would you say you're much of a Superman fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I am definitely a Superman fan. Uh, Superman. The movie is still my favorite movie of all time. That's my Star Wars. Um, and I don't know, I don't remember a time when I didn't know who Superman was, didn't know everything that you need to know about Superman that he was Clark Kent, that he was from Krypton, that he worked at the Daily Planet, or in this case, the Daily Star. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I'm slightly, slightly more of a Batman fan on any given day, but then sometimes it, flip-flops so oh definitely definitely a superman fan and a fan of the earth 2 superman in particular well then you're just the right man to co-host on this first episode that's right uh before chris and i launch into our review of this issue i think it's a good idea to give listeners an idea of the history behind this comic where did it come from and how did it come into being 
because there is a secret origin behind the story. The secret origin of Secret Origins was revealed by Roy Thomas in an essay he wrote at the end of Issue 1. Some of the backstory was also later chronicled in Volume 4 of the All-Star Companion. So everything you're about to hear comes from one of those two sources. It started in June of 1961, when DC published a one-shot called Secret Origins that collected the previously printed origin stories of some of their most popular characters and teams from that time. Ten years later, DC brought this idea back with a seven-issue series titled Secret Origins that once again reprinted the origin stories of popular heroes from the Golden and Silver Age. They published two more Secret Origins comics in the 70s as part of the DC Special series, and this included retold and redrawn origins for Wonder Woman and Doctor Fate, and a never-before-told story of Black Canary which, if you're listening, I covered on the first episode of Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. Then, in 1984, Roy Thomas and Paul Kupperberg wrote the heretofore untold origin of the Golden Age Starman in All-Star Squadron, issue 41. This was, in a way, the culmination of a passion project that Thomas had been developing with DC's executive editor, Dick Giordano, for a couple of years. Thomas wanted to revisit the classic Golden Age origin stories, but he knew that reprinting the old material from the 40s, it simply wouldn't be profitable. The, the contemporary audience of that time wouldn't want to look at the old, what he viewed as sort of archaic art. He proposed taking those classic plots and re-scripting and redrawing them for that new contemporary audience from the 80s. Giordano greenlit the idea with the stipulations that half of the issues could feature Thomas's beloved Golden Age heroes, while the other half highlighted newer characters created during the Silver and Bronze Age. Thomas decided that he would only write and edit the odd-numbered issues with the characters he cared about. He also pushed for the character origins to be retold mostly in chronological order, beginning with the Earth-2 Superman. Now, I say mostly because Superman was not the oldest existing character owned by DC Comics at the time. That would be Dr. Occult, who was created by the same writer and artist team who created Superman, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And Dr. Occult was created three years before The Last Son of Krypton. But if you're jumpstarting a brand new anthology series, you're not going to lead off with Dr. Occult over Superman. So the Doctor's (laughs) origin wouldn't be told again until issue 17. Superman should have been followed by the Crimson Avenger, but Thomas and Giordano decided to push the more popular and culturally relevant Captain Marvel with issue 3, and the Crimson Avenger in issue 5. And after that, the series' format changed so each issue of Secret Origins would include at least two stories, generally with one from the modern age leading off and one from the golden age as a backup. And that format continued pretty much through the end of the series. When this comic came out, I was familiar with Secret Origins from uh, some of the digests that DC put out uh, in the 80s, uh, you know, Best of DC. Mm-hmm. They had several different digest uh, series going on, but but uh, Best of DC, Blue Ribbon Digest, uh, the Blue Ribbon part was unofficial. But they had several uh, Secret Origins of Superheroes, Secret Origins of Supervillain issues and they actually used the logo from the the 70s uh, s- uh specials uh like the black canary light ray dr fate issue mm-hmm. and so i was kind of familiar with the whole that whole notion uh from that so when this came out i actually missed this first issue i don't i don't know how that happened but 
but I, I didn't buy this first issue off the off the stands at you know newsstand distribution. It probably I would have bought it if I'd seen it, but it, it took it was a year or two later I found it in a, uh, in a comic shop. I don't have every issue, but I bought them as they came out, and I mean sometimes. I bought even ones I wasn't as interested in just because I liked the, the idea of, you know, just learning. It's kind of like who's who you were learning something about a character. Well, I don't really know that much about this guy, but you know, I'll give it a shot. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. The, the series overall. And, uh, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, it, 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 when you read this essay, it's like, well, it wasn't, profitable it you know the, the artwork of the golden age was maybe a little too crude it, it wasn't feasible it, it was it was technically hard to do and then what about maybe oh i don't know what was it four maybe less probably three years later they started the archive series yeah uh, <laughs> reprinting the golden age stories in a very expensive format they weren't willing to you know put golden age material in a 75 cent comic but just three years later they'd make charge of you know, 50 bucks for a hardcover version of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll be back right after this short promotional break. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commanding. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Area. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear the Man. Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at 2TrueFreaks.com And now, let's talk about Secret Origins, Issue 1, The Golden Age Superman. First off, what are your thoughts about this cover? Oh, I, I love this cover. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of Jerry Ordway anyway, and it's it's just a great cover. I mean, you've got Superman and, and other JSAers looking at a crystal ball, and you see uh, Ordway, and well, it's boring in Ordway's version of um, the famous action number one cover. It's just, uh, and Superman looks like, gosh, I can't believe I did that. I love the look on his face. <laughs> that, that is my too. I, and I never noticed that until I was really started scrutinizing this. I was like, what is that expression? He was like, oh my gosh, I was so young back then. It's like, there's, yeah. this, there's this look of embarrassment and awkwardness. Yeah, it's like, you know, the Earth 2 Superman, one thing I really liked about him is that they kept that, he was more, he wasn't quite the Boy Scout that the Earth 1 Superman became. He was the 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 champion of the oppressed he was more reckless he was you know he didn't mind roughing up a wife beater you know all that was still part of his 
origin, part of his history. And uh, but you, you get the impression here he's like, wow, somebody could have really got hurt if I hadn't, you know. It's like <laughs> these guys weren't really that bad, and I just smashed their car into a freaking cliff, you know. <laughs> There's a weight to him, a sense of actual humanity that, despite his alien origin, he he really does seem in these early stories just like a circus strong man. Yeah, and I think Ordway really captured that, and certainly when he's when he's working with Wayne Boring. They, they right. just nail that. Yeah, I like, you know, I like the fact that you get the other Justice Society guys. And, you know, and a lot of these, I mean, this came out right after Crisis. Um, you know, I think the Spectre was, he was left in a, in a kind of a limbo state in, in Crisis. And Wonder Woman went off to, to uh, Olympus because you get the Spectre, Wonder Woman, uh, Jay Garrick, Flash, the Huntress, who was dead. And then you got Dr. Fate and then, of course, Superman. But uh, I, I mean, it, it's it's reminiscent of of uh, some old classic Justice League and Justice Society covers. So I mean, it's just uh, you know they the, the got uh, like All Star Comics number eight. Uh, they were looking at a crystal ball, and that's where they introduced uh, Starman and Doctor Midnight to the team. Yep. And then JLA number twenty nine was another the second uh, JLA JSA crossover. Uh, with a crystal ball. So I, I think it's the perfect cover for this series because it's so the cover itself, of course, the action number one is the really the beginning of DC history. I mean, obviously it, they existed a few years before, but that's the touchstone of DC's history. But then you've got the, the history of the JSA and the JLA also in the cover. Uh, and it, you know, it's just, it's just a perfect start for the series. And it is, it's a, it's a voyeuristic cover. It shows characters looking into the past, and that's mm-hmm. very much what Roy Thomas is going for with this series, and that was his intention, was to revisit the past <laughs> history through modern eyes. The Secret Origin of the Golden Age Superman. Roy Thomas, writer-editor. Wayne Boring and Jerry Ordway, illustrators. Gene D'Angelo, colorist. David C. Weiss, letterer. Based on the original classic stories by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in Action Comics No. 1, 1938 and elsewhere. It was dated April 1986. On sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was January the 10th, 1986. And the splash page depicts a young Earth-2 Superman. He's standing triumphantly, hands on hips, of course, uh, but he's surveying images from his early history. You see the destruction of Krypton, his rocket's journey to Earth, and the Daily Star building. The narrator speaks of the crisis and how it ended, but that the paradoxes still remain. Little did he know. He cites the loss of the original Superman as perhaps the most poignant and perplexing development of the crisis as we begin his first story. From the Encyclopedia Galactica, 30th Century Edition, we learn about the Krypton of the Earth-2 universe. Using his natural leaping abilities, 
a superpower by human standards, Jor-El returns to his home, unsuccessful in convincing the planet's leading science council of Krypton's impending demise. As he and his wife Lara discuss their infant son Kal-El, another land quake begins. The couple flee through the sky as their city begins to crumble, making their way to another home, which Jor-El reinforced against such disaster. The scientist fears this will do them little good, as Krypton is in its death throes. With no hope for survival, Jor-El and Lara agree to place their son into an experimental space flyer and launch him toward a world they call Sol-3. The rocket is launched, and as it hurtles through the void, Krypton succumbs to gathering atomic energies at its core and explodes. The tiny rocket's warp drive makes the journey to Earth in only a few short days and arrives during the First World War. All right, we'll stop there and give a few notes about this introduction. I can't decide how, how I feel about Jor-El's costume in these depictions of the Earth 2 Krypton. Right. If Jor-El if, if Jor and Lara were in any other context, I would love these costumes as sort of superhero costumes or Flash Gordon type of costumes. But I think I've just become so used to them as sort of not necessarily characters of action, but science, that I, I just... I don't know. This is just an interesting look for them that I... I don't know. I, I, I love these designs. I, my, I just have a tough time processing them as Superman's parents. Right, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I kind of... I always think of this as the Earth-1 Jor-El more. Um, you know, I, he wasn't always depicted this way. It's kind of surprising they didn't go back to an earlier depiction of him, you know. In an outfit that wasn't quite so iconically Silver Age. I mean, he doesn't have the big sun on his chest, but other than that, he is the the classic. You know, anytime they did a story on Krypton, Jor El would pretty much look like this during the Weisinger era. You know, yeah. And then and then in the World of Krypton miniseries and 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 things like that. So yeah, it's it's uh, it, it kind of sticks out to me that. And maybe that was because they knew that this Krypton was going away. This was a final look at the iconic Krypton designs. I don't know. I don't know if that had part of it. And that's true. Yeah. They might have realized that we wouldn't get to see this type of look again, so they wanted one last hurrah for it. Right. And they had Wayne Boring, who of course, of course, drew Superman from the '30s. One of the, if not the first, then one of the first assistants to Joe Shuster. Right. And worked all the way up through the '60s. Uh, on the comics and the the comic strip, so uh, you know this was probably the last version of Jor El he had drawn, and so when it was like in the script it said Jor El, he's like if he didn't have any direction, he's like okay headband, you know mm-hmm. green jacket shirt, uh, Jor El, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing I noticed that really kind of jumped out at me was uh, Superman's mother is called Lara or Laura, however you want to pronounce it. I've heard it pronounced both ways, but. Actually, it was uh, in other places, including Who's Who after this, which the Earth 2 Superman's Who's Who entry came out after this issue. But in Action Comics number 44, uh, which told how Earth 2 Superman and Lois married, they list in the back differences between the Earth 1 and Earth 2 Superman. And, of course, Jor-El is spelled J-O-R hyphen L, no E-L, as the Earth 1 Superman. But the Earth 2 Superman's mother is Laura, L-O-R-A, instead of L-A-R-A, 
but here it's L-A-R-A, which kind of surprises me that Roy Thomas missed that. Um, so he, this is the Earth One Superman's mother. <laughs> Boy, she must have been getting around. Wow, yeah, she's hopping. She's she's hopping dimensions to get some Jor El, man. That's it. <laughs> Too bad she couldn't bring like a Supergirl or something with her. But right, no kid. Well, they had Power Girl, so yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, no, but at this point, now she would have been an Atlantean. Oh, that's right. She's Arion's great, 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 yeah. great, great granddaughter, or whatever it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting in the in the first the very first page, uh, it says uh, uh, Superman vanished forever into the oblivion of the antimatter universe. Well, no, not really. <laughs> yeah, that's not actually how Crisis on Infinite Earths played out. No, he he, you, that's what he thought was going to happen, but he had a last minute reprieve inside Alexander Luthor's. Heaven, you know, with right, right. his Lois and Superboy Prime, where they should have stayed and never returned, but of course they did. Uh, so. yeah, I guess, I guess Roy Thomas wasn't privy to that information. Well, yeah, or, I mean, or they didn't want to spoil it for the people. I mean, right? Maybe. I mean, I guess when this came out, uh, I didn't. I didn't look to see was was Crisis. I guess Crisis number. Uh, crisis only would have been halfway over. Oh, okay. Okay. Or well, yeah. Okay. Well, this was okay. this was this came out in this was released in January of '86. So you know right. Thomas is probably scripting this. He's probably writing it when the first issue of Crisis is coming out. Probably so. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah. Hey, listeners, it's Ryan here. Sorry to interrupt, but I just had to come on and correct the chronological mistake that I'm sure had most of you shouting at this podcast. See, I was confusing the cover dates of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which continued into the early months of 1986. Of course, the actual on-sale date for Crisis Issue 12 was late November of 85, a full month and a half before Secret Origins Number 1 came out. So my no-prize defense for Roy Thomas's error is mostly baseless in this case. My derp. And also, you know, there's things like uh, he uses the hook of the Encyclopedia Galactica yeah. uh, to detail from the 30th century to detail the history of Earth 2. Well, unless this encyclopedia still existed from the pre-crisis universe of the 30th century, there'd be no mention of this Krypton in it. You know, so yeah. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting to de- device. Which I kind of thought was a little unnecessary, but I guess he this is this tale is so known mm-hmm. he probably felt like he had to have a hook, you know. Uh, I mean, that you know, like me and Rob have covered. There's a Power Records version of the origin of Superman, you know, and yeah. and, and there's of course every it, there's movies, there's TV, every version of Superman, whatever has to depict this. Even on the Super Friends, they depicted the origin of Superman. Well, his so. origin, his origin is basically. Biblical. I mean, Superman's origin is a science fiction retelling of the story of Moses. Right. Moses, when he was born, the Pharaoh was a, was executing all of the firstborn, so his mother put him in a small basket and sent him down the river to be spared. Right. And what happened was he was adopted by a couple that raised him as their own, and he became this savior figure. 
mm-hmm. Siegel and Schuster told that story in a science fiction context, and that was Superman. It's the the parallels are right there. So right. it is such an easily identifiable story. It's it's even if you don't know Superman, you kind of it's like a race memory. We just have that story imprinted in us that we know how this plays out. Right. Which was one of several of my problems with Man of Steel. Like I, I, I tell people I had five make or break problems with that movie before they even got to Earth. <laughs> which meant there were like four or five major problems with how they depicted Krypton and what happened on that story in the first 20 minutes that just killed that movie for me. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Cause a lot of people, you know, kind of like that because it's, you get butt kicking Jor-El, you know, <laughs> which was basically just uh, Russell Crowe's contract is like, yes, I will be in your movie, but I have to fight and I have to win because I'm Russell Crowe. Which is like, <laughs> Okay, but if the movie opens up with Jor-El beating Zod, like fighting Zod and winning, then I'm not afraid of General Zod for the rest of the movie. Mm, because, if, because if the chief scientist could kick his ass, <laughs> then the son who grew up on a farm in the Midwest really ought to kick his ass. Good point. So. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's, well, it could be worse, you know, they could have let Marlon Brando, you know, look like a green suitcase or whatever he wants. <laughs> so maybe, maybe Russell Crowe's demands weren't so bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but back to this. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you know, one thing, uh, I keep going back to that, that splash page, which I really like the splash, you know, but, uh, that was beautiful. Yeah. You know, uh, Roy Thomas, uh, and we're going to talk about Roy Thomas a lot. I know. And the all-star companion volume four, uh, where he covers the Secret Origin series, he he actually says that uh, Jerry Ordway redrew the Superman S uh, throughout this comic uh, because they had a certain the, the Earth Two Superman's S had evolved into an earlier version of the Superman S that had been popularized by Fred Ray on a lot of comic covers of the time, including that classic one where Superman's got the eagle landing on his arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's kind of where, and, and some artists like George Perez and Ordway had said, that's it. That's the version we want. But, you know, I used to read uh, the Superman family uh, for the Mr. And Mrs. Superman feature that had the earth Two Superman. And uh, they drew a jacked up guy. I, I love Kurt Schaffenberger's art, but he drew a really jacked up version of the Superman S in that series in an attempt to make it look different than the Earth-1 Superman. It was so very lopsided, and, and, and I was glad to see that Ordway went in and reworked this so it, uh, because the Earth-2 Superman is such a big part of Crisis, and of course that's going on right now, and uh, I'm glad they kept that consistency uh, because, you know, that, that's, that's who you, when you think of the Earth-2 Earth version of Superman, I think most of us fans think of that George Perez, Jerry Ordway inked version from Crisis. Yeah, this makes me wonder about who who my favorite Superman artist is of all time. And Ordway is definitely up there on that list. Yeah, me too. I also, I mean, I've said this in other cases, and part of it is just because of how the amount of his work. Dick Dillon on Justice League of America, I really liked his depiction of Superman too. Mm-hmm, yeah. And yeah. Like even more than George Perez, and that's and that's saying a lot. Wow, yeah, it's, it it probably comes down to one of those two. 
um, from yeah. my all-time favorite Superman artist. Well, Dick Dillon did a lot of uh, World's Finest, too, in DC Comics Presents, so he, he got a lot of Superman action besides just Justice League, too. So yeah, yeah, he did. I can, I can definitely see that. And, you know, Dick Dillon gets – he gets beat up a lot, I think. Uh, there's, there's some people that, that just kind of – and I think it's because he – did Justice League for so long, people kind of take take him for granted. But it's kind of the same thing with Kurt Swan. I feel like I, I think those guys they both had a very uh, workmanlike. I mean, they, they did really good work. I don't want to say they they just came in did a job, but but they they were very consistent. They had their way of drawing a character. When they figured it out, they stayed on model. You know, yeah. uh, they the you know I mean it evolved over time. I know. If you look at Dick Dillon's stuff from the, the late 60s up and through the 70s, you can definitely tell there was a little bit of a Neil Adams influence in his work because the characters started to look a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman's hairline was a little bit lower, uh, you know, but his I, – I, I really like Dillon's Justice League stuff, and I think Dillon drew very sexy women. I think that gets overlooked a lot, and, that, and as, you know, as the Black Canary guy, I think, you know, I think he drew a great Black Canary. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> And actually, when you when you said the phrase "on model," a light bulb went off over my head, or like reminded me of something. Just that phrase, and of course, I'm wrong. I just said that it was either Ordway or Dylan that was my favorite Superman artist. Of course, it's not. Of course, the best artist who ever drew Superman was Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise his name. name. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's a shame he didn't get to you know, become the permanent Superman artist like they, I guess, were grooming him for at one time, but I guess he just couldn't yeah. keep up with the monthly grind. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's the Superman that you, his Superman is the one you still see when you walk into Walmart, you know. Right, <laughs> right. He, he, there he is somewhere in that store. You'll find a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, Superman. So. I mean, I think some of my first exposure to the DC characters was through merchandising. It was through... The, the cartoons and the toys, the action figures and everything, but there was always those sort of stock images, and a lot of them were presented, were, were produced by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. So his version, his take on a lot of those DC characters is how I identified them when I was a kid, before I even right. discovered comics. Right, right. Um, all right, let's press on, otherwise we're never going to finish this comic. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to – I thought it was – we were talking about style and artists and things. Wayne Boring, he hadn't lost a step. I mean he he did some other Superman work during this period right before Crisis in the Superman books. And, and then, of course, he did the, the Who's Who entry. I think he did Jor-El, and he did the Earth 2 Superman with Ordway. And uh, I think Ordway may have been to Jor-El, but uh, I've, you see his pencils in the uh, – the All Star Companion volume we're talking about, and I mean they look great. They're, I mean they're they're. I don't know how old Wayne Boring was at this time, but man, his stuff was. It still looked like. I mean, it, I don't know if he could have if he drew any better in 1960. Yeah, it's it's just, it's just great stuff. Yeah, the the fact that he was still working on this, you know, 50 years after he had first started on the character was quite a testament to not just his staying power but his incredible talent. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, let's move on to section two. The Kryptonian rocket ship lands on Earth where it is discovered by John and Mary Kent, a loving couple from the town of Smallville. The Kents discover the infant Kal-El, and when they remove him from the ship, it bursts into flames and incinerates all trace of its alien origin. They take the baby Cal to an orphanage where he amazes the staff with his inhuman strength and agility. 
Soon thereafter, John and Mary adopt the child and name him Clark Kent. As Clark grows to adulthood, new powers continue to manifest, and he realizes that he can leap a distance of an eighth of a mile, that he can lift incredible weights, that he can run faster than a speeding train, and that his skin is invulnerable to all but the most powerful and explosive attacks. While Clark matures physically, he also learns important life lessons from his adoptive parents. Pa Kent teaches his son not to flaunt his superpowers, to even keep them hidden so as not to terrify people but he also advises him to use his powers for the betterment of humanity when the time is right. After John and Mary die, the adult Clark Kent moves to Metropolis and tries to get a reporting job at the Daily Star. The editor, George Taylor, opts not to hire him due to his total lack of experience. Clark really wants the job, though, figuring that being close to news stories will put him in prime position to help people. Turning down an alley, Clark sheds his suit clothes to reveal the colorful costume crafted from his Kryptonian swaddling clothes. With a heroic up, up, and away, he leaps high into the metropolis sky and overhears the editor get a news flash about a lynch mob outside the county jail. At said county jail, a group of locals storm the jail cell where they grab a man named Sims, who is accused of killing Jack Kennedy. Note that that's a Jack Kennedy, not necessarily the Jack Kennedy. Before the mob can hang Sims, the costumed clerk drops down, telling the men to surrender the accused and go back to their homes. Instead, they choose to rush him. Naturally, Clark takes them out pretty effortlessly. Well, no, actually he does expend some effort to pull his punches so he doesn't kill or maim the lynch mob. When asked who he is, Clark tells Sims and the cops that he is simply a reporter. Sims tells Clark that he didn't kill Jack Kennedy, the labor leader, and neither did Evelyn Curry, a woman who was set to be executed for the crime that very night. Sims says the real killer is a singer named B. Carroll. Clark has one hour to prove Evelyn Curry's innocence, but he takes the time to call George Taylor with his account of the lynch mob and secures himself a reporter job with the star. So, very interesting that... When the police ask who he is, he says, I'm a reporter. Yes. <laughs> Way to give away that secret identity there, Clark. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how long. I mean, uh, I don't, gosh, yeah, that's, that, that's just interesting. No, like, no, I'm a friend or just a concerned citizen. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, I'm a reporter. I came here to get a good story and ended up beating up half a dozen men <laughs> doing your job for you, officer. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that was uh, that was interesting. You know, I, I went back and looked, you know, a lot of this is, uh, you know, pretty much panel for panel redrawn from Superman number one and Action, action, action number one, which, of course, Action Comics number one. Uh, Superman number one is, I think Michael Bailey put it somewhere, a director's cut of action number one. Yeah. Um, and uh, for the life of me, I don't think I, I couldn't find a reprint of Superman number one. I've got like 15 of action number one. And I know i got a Superman one around here somewhere. But in action one, you start in the story part of it after the origin recap, after the section you discovered. So I wasn't able to go back and look in Superman number one and see what Superman's answer was or if they even asked him who he was. I don't, I don't know who – I can't figure out which one of them, Schuster – I mean, Siegel, sorry. Siegel or Thomas had him say, oh, a reporter. You know? <laughs> so, 
You know, I just grabbed, I've got the Superman Chronicles trade paperback right here, and I'm wondering if Superman number one is in this. Yep, Superman is in this. Let me see. Let me flip okay. through this really quick. Okay. See if he answers that question. Uh, yeah, one of the deputies or one of the guards says, I don't know how you did it, but you've my thanks. Who are you? And Superman responds, a reporter. Let's get the prisoner back in his cell. The dialogue is almost verbatim. <laughs> so there you go. Jerry Siegel wasn't too concerned about his secret identity at this point, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I can't help myself. I'm going right back to Man of Steel. The, the scene where Pa Kent says basically advises Clark to keep his powers secret, but you can use them for the betterment of humanity. He's, he's saying you, you don't have to flaunt your powers because that will scare people, but you still need to use them to save lives. Right. And that's not the advice Kevin Costner's Pa Kent delivered in Man of Steel. No, his, no. That Pa Kent, which... I I found almost offensive on levels because I don't want to get on a soapbox here too much, but I'm I'm going to anyway because it's it's my podcast. Right. Uh, the I I read as I was watching that movie unfold in the theater, I was reading into it that Pa Kent was supposed to be a a, a sort of Zack Snyder's idea of a very stereotypical, almost homophobic. Midwestern farm father mm. who would rather die than see his son outed. Oh, gotcha. And mm. and would rather basically just caution his son to stay in the closet and keep himself hidden and and legitimately would rather face a horrible death <laughs> than confront the truth of his son or let the world know what his son was. Oh, wow. And I just kept thinking what message is that? I mean, the basically that, that was the divide was that, okay, Clark's adoptive parents are the problem in this story. And it's his biological father, Jor-El, who's the real hero of this story because Jor-El sends his son to be, to be saved. And also Jor-El doesn't die and go away. He stays in the movie for the next two hours. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I just kept thinking how much more, profound and how much more powerful and how much more uplifting and true to the spirit it would have been if when Clark finds out that he's an alien and he screams that he's he's afraid if Pa Kent had said no you don't have to be afraid nobody is ever going to take you away from me you're my son and yeah just if he had just embraced it instead i think the message that that would have conveyed not just on for like social political reasons that would have a, a, attracted different groups and and advocacy groups but but just on a pure storytelling level and what that would have done for the characters would have meant so much more and i just like that was that was the linchpin in the movie when when they got to that part i was like this isn't this isn't the superman that i know this isn't recognizable yeah but like I said, I don't want I, to. I don't want to hate on that movie for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, well, you know, when you were saying that, I'm thinking the whole time. I'm I, I'm just hearing in my head. Uh, some people might groan at this, but I'm thinking Smallville in the episode uh, Rosetta with uh, Christopher Reeve. Clark finds out he's from Krypton, yeah. and and uh, at the end of that episode, uh, John Schneider, who is my favorite 
Paul Kent. I don't care if he was Bo Duke. He was a great Paul Kent. <laughs> and I love I love the Dukes of Hazard. I have no. I grew up with it and I love it. But he was a great uh, Jonathan Kent. And he said, "You are my son." And he hugged him. And and uh, that is how I. That's what I think of of Jonathan Kent. I think of Glenn Ford, and I think, but I mostly think of John Schneider because Glenn Ford really wasn't in the movie mm-hmm. that much. But he was great in the because he's Glenn Ford. But I, I'm with you. That, you know the one thing. One thing I will criticize this story for in Secret Origins is in doing research for this. I, I got my old beat up Who's Who uh, comic out and and looked at the Earth Two Superman's entry. And it does mention the deathbed speech that Jonathan gives to Clark about using his powers for good. And you see that essentially here in that uh, panel. But but it's more of just a it's it's not, you know, my dying words to you, my son or this, you know, uh, the, the power of that, which is is from the 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 Superman origin that Wayne Boring drew the first full length, full you know story of Superman's origin for the 10th anniversary in 1948, Wayne Boring actually drew that issue, and you see that's that's where that originated. Where Jonathan's on his deathbed, and he you know tells Clark to use his powers for good. Uh, you don't get that here, and in fact, when you see the Kent's tombstones, it looks like Jonathan passed away before Martha. If you go by what's on the tombstones, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that's according to Who's Who. That's part of the Earth Two Superman's history, and I know that's not following along with action in Superman. Uh, action number one is Superman number one, but I think I would have liked to have seen that in here rather than slavishly worry about recreating all the panels from the first Superman story. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, I, I do, I'm, I appreciate and I, and I know that was part of Roy Thomas's mission. He wanted to, uh, him and Dick Giordano feared that, that fans couldn't deal with the rather kind of crude artwork and, mm-hmm. and, and story writing of the, of the golden age. Uh, but if they represented it, uh, these stories, then then they would buy them. And so therefore he essentially adapted them whole cloth in cases. But I do think it would have been nice to have that because you need that. I think it really emphasizes the importance of Clark's upbringing. And, you know, as most Superman fans feel, that is what that's what puts the even though he's from Krypton, that's what puts the super in. It puts the man in Superman, but it also puts the super in Superman because that's what that's what makes him who he is, even without the powers. You know, is that Absolutely. moral Absolutely. compass? Yes. Yeah, that's the, the moral fortitude that he has is because his parents raised him. His Earth parents raised him the way they did, not because Jor El kicked ass in Krypton. And <laughs> and that's something that I've always, when I think about Superman and Batman. How they can, how they relate to each other, how they juxtapose each other. To me, their their relationship comes down to this, and their dichotomy comes down to this. Batman was created in an act of violence. His parents were taken away from him in this senseless moment where his world was crushed, and they were killed, and that created Batman, that forged Batman. Superman was created in an act of love. His parents nobly sacrificed themselves for him. They died to protect him, to give him a better life. And then he was adopted. He was taken in by a loving couple who sheltered him and imposed good values on him. Bruce wasn't adopted. He was 
taken in by the butler who gave him all that he could, but he still very much grew up alone. And that's that's always sort of why one of them gravitates toward the darkness and the shadows and the fear, and the other one gets his power from the light, from love and inspiration. Very well said. Uh, you should go to work for DC Comics right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would last very long. I, I, I like that. That's, you know, and, and uh, you know, Clark, I mean, sorry, Bruce being raised, you know, in the modern since Frank Miller in the in Wayne Manor by Alfred in a house that's essentially haunted yeah. by the ghosts of his parents. It's a mausoleum. Where it's, it's a mausoleum and Superman is given a whole new life. He's he. And if you go by the burn version or the 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 uh, Richard Donner version, he leaves this sterile world. And then he is raised in the very, you know, corn belt of the United States. You know, I mean, he's, he's raised in, in, on a farm where everything grows and everything's alive. You know, it's, and there's color. Uh, you know, there's, there's yes. like color. It's not <laughs> sterile and white. <laughs> a few things I thought of, um, yet the, this version of Superman, his adoptive mother was Mary Kent, not Martha. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying yeah. to remember, was that. Was Mar- was that consistent with the Silver Age? Was it Martha Kent? Was that sort of the the Earth One Superman? That that wasn't like a post crisis invention by John Byrne for the Man of Steel miniseries, was it? No, no, she was. Uh, they eventually they became Jonathan and Martha. Okay, I think through the Superboy stories and uh, whenever they would have a flashback. Of course, it took a while for even though Superboy stories started being published. What like I think forty five or something like that, or maybe even earlier than that. But, uh, you know, the Superman origin in 48 didn't even mention him being Superboy, which is why it almost has to be the Earth 2 Superman's origin. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a strange thing. People people think the Silver Age began with Barry Allen in Showcase number four. But technically, the first Earth 1 stories appeared in more fun comics Superboy series in yeah. the 40s. So it's it's kind of an odd thing. But, yeah, you the, the Kent's names changed According to what medium you were in, they were uh, Eben and Sarah. Uh, I think in the George Lothar. Yeah, thank goodness they didn't keep Eben. Um, I guess for Ebenezer, I don't know. Eben, Eben. I never uh, heard of that before. There was he was Ed, Eben Kent or Eben Kent. Eben, yeah, yeah. That's in. I think the I think the Adventures of Superman, the the very first episode of the George Reeves series. Oh gosh, I, I believe that's their names on there. Uh, so as 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 recent, and that's not recent, <laughs> but that's a Superman that we all have been exposed to. You know, we've all seen the Adventure of Superman. Uh, so if you go back to the the, I think it's the last episode shot in the first season, but the first one aired Superman on Earth, which is the origin of Superman. Um, I believe that they are Eben, Eben, and Sarah in that, and I think that may have come from that uh, Adventures of Superman novel by George Lothar, which. Hmm. They were printed back in the 90s. I actually have that. I should have looked that up, uh, which if you ever get a chance to uh, to get that, that has got some beautiful uh, painted paintings by Joe Schuster yeah. or his studio. I'm not sure how much, <laughs> you know, I'm sure he worked on it, but he, sometimes he just did like Superman's face uh, when it got so busy. But uh, that's uh, that's I mean, it's more of a young adults, a young readers novel. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the paintings alone are are, are worth it. It's really, it's really slick. They're like pulp magazine cover paintings, but with Superman. So, uh, it's, if you're an earth two or a golden age Superman fan, just check that out. But yeah, so uh, Jonathan and Martha was definitely, um, 
something that had been established by the Silver Age. So John and Mary was a throwback to an earlier version there. Another note I have on page 8 of the comic, panel 2, I am convinced, is the first crossover in the Secret Origins series. Clark Kent is walking oh, yeah. by the Daisy <laughs> Star. Clark passes Billy Batson. <laughs> that is so clearly a C.C. Beck Billy Batson. Yeah, an early C.C. Beck Billy Batson, yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's got the red sweater. Which Captain Marvel comes. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, yeah. And he's a newsboy, so you know yeah. it's you know it's Billy Batson. Of course, you get uh, you get George Taylor uh, in the uh, the Daily Star, which was uh, the the early newspaper that the they settled on for the Earth Two Superman, and that's that's something that that uh, that uh, we keep mentioning Michael Bailey. But if you're talking about Superman, you almost have to mention Michael Bailey. Uh, but on his various shows, Michael Bailey has made a point to say. The Earth 2 Superman's not quite the Golden Age Superman, and and I agree with him because it's like, you know, Superman's hometown and the paper he worked for evolved through the stories. I mean, one at one point they were actually in Cleveland, Ohio, where uh, Siegel and Schuster were from. And then they settled on Metropolis, but they didn't settle on the paper for a while, and then it was the Daily Star, and then it eventually became the Daily Planet. Well, I think it was Mike Friedrich... In one of the JLA JSA stories, he when they introduced the Earth Two Superman, I mean he had been in the I think the first comic he was in uh, was the the Black Canary, the the famous story that you and me talked about yep. <laughs> in, in in retrospect in the in the, on your uh, Flowers and Fishnets but uh, podcast. But uh, the next time that they used him, I think he put a blurb: uh, Superman, Clark Kent, editor of the Metropolis Daily Star. So in that one panel, he said, the Earth 2 Superman worked for the Daily Star, and he was the editor now. And that was it. I mean, that's all, that's all the development you got other than he's Superman. But it's a different, not quite the Superman running around in, in action in, in Superman comics right now. Uh, so that became the, the touchstone for the uh, Earth 2 adventures. But, of course, in the Golden Age... If you pick up an actual Golden Age comic, 99% of them have Clark Kent working for the Daily Planet. (laughs) So it's just that first year or so before they – a year or two before everything kind of gelled into place with the various influence of the radio show and and, uh, the newspaper strip, which of course was produced by the same uh, group of people. And then eventually the Fleischer cartoons, which is of course where – uh, between the radio show and the Fleischer cartoons, that's where you get Superman beginning to fly rather than leap. I think the the Fleischers eventually said, can we just have him fly? This is getting kind of ridiculous, showing him bouncing around. <laughs> and DC's like, okay, yeah, he can fly. So in the radio show, you know, you actually get the part where he says, in this, in this uh, story, uh, Thomas works in the up, up, and away. Well, that was Bud Collier's way of, or the writer's way of telling us he's going to fly or leap now, you know, because it's radio, you know. So, uh, so we're going to have him say up, up and away, and then make the swishy sound through the air, so you'll know that it's time for Superman to fly. So, it, it never quite worked as well in the comics or in live action. It always seemed a little, I, I don't know. Even as a kid, I'm like, what he really? say that when he took off flying, you know, I, I don't know with Johnny, with Johnny storm, he's a cocky 
hothead, you can see him saying flame on is just a like a power mantra, you know, or something. But with Superman, I, I don't know if I ever quite bodied always have to say up, up and away before he took off. <laughs> no, it, it's, it is the signifier that only makes sense in radio. Right, right. But he, he kind of almost had to work it in here, so. Because, yeah, again, it was probably the last time we were going to see it. <laughs> right, right. And it's such an identifiable, such an iconic line that you gotta you got to mention that. All right. Final notes uh, for this section? No. I, one thing that just kind of surprised me is I remember there was somebody on death row in the first Superman story, but I didn't remember it being a woman. Uh, that's pretty pretty uh, racy, pretty risky for a 1930s comic. You know, it's, it's kind of surprising that they'd have a – a woman on death row and, and uh, not to plug my own show, but Cindy and I did an episode where we covered uh, the Superman, the animated series episode, the late Mr. Kent, uh, where Clark works to free a, a man that's on death row. And I pointed out that, Hey, that's back from the very first Superman story, but I had forgotten it was a woman, mm-hmm. uh, which, so, you know, that's, you know, of course, you know, this is before, you know, this, this is very early, this is before I think DC eventually, long before the Comics Code, eventually had an advisory board of like psychologists. I think that's how they got connected to Wonder Woman's creator William Moulton Marston uh, uh, to kind of, you know, kind of make sure their stories weren't doing any kind of psychological damage to kids, you know. Um, and that's one reason why Batman quit shooting people uh, <laughs> and got Robin. Uh, so, and it's a good uh, but thing yeah, that- it's. It's a good thing that that always and forever ended the controversy of whether or not comics were good or bad for kids. That never came up again. <laughs> right, exactly. All they, all they had yeah, to do was introduce Robin, and then there was no question about whether or not comics were safe <laughs> for kids. <laughs> Unless you're Frederick Wortham, and then, then he had a problem with it. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that's all I got on this section. All right, Lynn, let's move ahead to section three and find out who B. Carroll is. Right. Clark goes to the nightclub and takes in the show of B. Carroll. Later in her dressing room, Superman forces a signed confession out of her and carries her away, heading toward the governor's mansion. Dropping her on the governor's lawn, he announces himself to the governor's servant who denies him entry. Forcing his way in, Superman rips off the steel door leading to the governor's bedroom and tells him of his urgent mission. His servant fires on the Man of Steel, and both men are shocked when the bullets bounce off harmlessly. Finally convinced of his intentions, the governor reads the confession and calls off the execution. The next day, the city is abuzz with talk of the man who stopped the execution and apprehended the real killer. At his new job, Clark Kent is asked by his editor, George Taylor, to investigate this Superman that is making headlines. Clark feigns ignorance at first but then assures Taylor that if he can't get the scoop on Superman, nobody can. Later that evening, Clark takes his co-worker, Lois Lane, out for dinner and dancing, but they are interrupted by a ruffian named Butch, who demands to cut in. Wishing to keep his true nature a secret, Clark plays the coward, and Lois slaps the masher, storming off. Butch won't take no for an answer, and he and his goons pursue Lane's car, while a watchful Clark changes to Superman. I'm trying to think... The origin of the name Superman was it the editor? Yeah, I went back first. I went back and looked, um, and uh, I think I've actually got Action Number One. I've got my copy of Action Number One right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me get it out of my slab here, and uh, 
wow, why does this have the Nestle Quick Bunny on the back? I don't think this is an original. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's see. The hell Let me saying? go back. Uh, so the editor, George Taylor, says in the action number one, did you ever hear of Superman? And Clark says, what? Yeah. Reports have been streaming in that a fellow that uh, with gigantic strength named Superman actually exists. I'm, I'm making it your steady assignment to cover these reports. Think you can handle it, Kent? And he's listen, cheap. If I can't, he says pretty much the same thing. You know, the Superman, if I can't get the scoop, nobody can. So, okay, we don't know that he say he was Superman and they picked it up. Why else does he have an S on his chest? <laughs> it certainly makes sense that he would have come up with that name before the press did, but you never know. Right. I mean, it's, you know, if it's not the L family crest, if it's not the, the, the Kryptonian symbol for hope or cheese or soup or, or whatever it is, you know, or, or bleakness or Zack Snyder, I don't, I don't know. But if it's not, if it's not any of those and, and the way that Thomas writes it in this actually makes it, it's, you know, it's kind of vague in the action. Number one, you don't know if he said his name was Superman to somebody off panel, but the way that it's it's worded here is this at least like did you ever hear of Superman? And then Clark, you know, Thomas has to put some historical reference in there. You mean like the theories of Nietzsche or some of that uh <laughs> master race nonsense Hitler's always spouting? No, I mean that strange muscle man who prevented the the Sims lynching. That's what our paper and others are calling him, since he's evidently got a big letter S on his shirt. So he just pointed it out. But he could have <laughs> made more sense of it by saying, having Clark say, well, you can call me Superman or, you know, or exactly. maybe he thinks that's too arrogant of him or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't just say, have you ever heard of a reporter? <laughs> Apparently there's, yeah. there's a crazy strong man running around saving the day who goes by the name of a reporter. <laughs> that's how he right. self-identifies himself to people. So. Right. <laughs> he should have an R on his chest for reporter man. <laughs> um, nice that in this version, Lois Lane writes a Lonely Hearts column. So, not necessarily the creative, yeah. the the crusading investigative journalist. Instead, she just writes the Lonely right, that, Hearts column. That's yeah. That that reminds me more of the Lois of the of the fifties that you know they would show occasionally writing something like even on the Adventures of Superman. She would. They showed her on a, at least one episode filling in for the lovelorn column lot writer. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, you tend to think of the original Lois as eventually the Lois they returned to, where she was the, you know, the 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 feminist uh, women's lib go getter. I don't need a man saving me, but I'll you know get in over my head, and then somebody will have to save me. Uh, but fairly capable otherwise, uh, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> reporter Lois Lane. Uh, but of course, she does take care of business and slaps the masher, and and just cannot stand Clark the coward. The the cowardly act it definitely got him off to a shaky start with Lois. That's that's a shame. Of course, we know for them it all ends you know very happily uh, until Infinite Crisis, anyway. Uh, so. <laughs> and thinking about Lois, like yeah, the, I'm I'm just stuck on this idea of her writing a Lonely Hearts column or some sort of like love advice column that just seems so antithetical to like what we think about Lois Lane today. And what bothers me so much about 
the sort of current incarnation of coupling Superman with Wonder Woman. I have a number of problems with that relationship. But what bothers me is that I just I love the idea of Clark Kent or Clark and Superman with Lois Lane. And it's mm-hmm. because of what I think Lois represents for him. Lois doesn't have to be the most beautiful woman in the world. And Superman could easily be with the most beautiful woman in the world. He could be with the most powerful woman in the world. And that probably is Wonder Woman. But that's not what makes Lois special. What makes Lois special to me is her fearlessness. That she will just throw caution to the wind and she will ride out into the storm and get the story. I think if Lois had a superpower, she wouldn't be superwoman. She would be a green lantern. She would get one of those magic rings because she is without fear. And I think that is something that Superman is drawn to, that Clark Kent is drawn to, that sense that she's not invulnerable, but she will put herself in as much danger as he does for the truth. And I just, I, I'm not getting that from any modern contemporary version of Superman and Lois Lane. Right. It's, it, they really seem to have just marginalized Lois uh, in the comics. I don't know if it's like a backlash to the fact that they were married prior to the new 52 and they felt like that that didn't, wasn't working. You know, that, I mean, no, no one at DC seems to know what to do with Superman. It's just ridiculous. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, we've all seen the solicitations for the post-convergence Superman. Uh, now there's new images of him riding a motorcycle. That might very well be a short storyline. This might not be the new direction they're going in. But, it, you know, it, I, I can't even tell you when, the, you know, I don't really read the Superman books, but, you know, I'll look at the solicitations. I don't even know where Lois has even, uh, you know, been of any importance lately in the Superman comics. Maybe she has. I know he revealed his secret identity to Jimmy, but, you know, beyond, and then again, that's subplanning Lois. I mean, you know, the the romance part's taken care of by Wonder Woman. The secret identity part that she knew from 1990 on is taken care of by Jimmy. So what's good Lois? What good's Lois, right? You know, it's like, they're just, it's, it's maybe Dan DeDio hates Lois as much as he hates Dick Grayson. I don't know. He's got a personal vendetta against Lois Lane. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, one thing I really liked about the Earth 2 Superman and Lois is is that when they revealed that they had gotten married, you know, they they you know, it showed that their partnership worked. I mean, they had the Mr. and Mrs. Superman series, which was a very cute, you know, it's it was a very usually a short you know, eight to 12 page, uh, basically backup feature in a anthology title. Uh, sometimes it took the lead, but not very often, but you know, those, I mean, it just showed that the couple could work and, uh, you know, and, and I really thought that when they had them marry post crisis, it was time, you know, it was time to, to, to go in that direction. I think the, the writer's, uh, for the most part, the creators, at least through the 90s, really handled that couple well. And and I think it's a shame that they just, you know, threw that all away. And it's, it's like they're they're going out of their way to not return to that. And so, therefore, Lois just gets sacked in the new 52, it seems like. The only thing I can make sense of it is that DC Comics 
is trying to attract a new readership because comics aren't have uh, comics are really struggling to find new readers right now. And DC mm-hmm. is going for a younger readership. And I think their idea of that younger reader is a more cynical, juvenile type of reader. And I think like when the when DC came up with its dictum that they weren't going to let any of their characters be married, the the line that Dan DiDio was selling was that marriage leads to stability and then basically the characters wouldn't would wouldn't be able to choose between their personal life and their heroic career and you would lose all sense of conflict and all i could imagine was what kind of stepford wives dan didio and jim lee and jeff johns must have if they <laughs> if they don't find any conflict in marriage right um, <laughs> the, the absurdity of that. And I think that only makes sense if you're a 12-year-old boy with a My Chemical Romance t-shirt and you think that the worst thing that can possibly happen to you is to grow up and get a job and get married and have kids. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you put it that way, it made me think, you know, back in the Silver Age, the Superman comics in particular seem to... I mean, even while Julius Schwartz was was writing, and I won't say that they were more adult, but they were more. They seemed to the, the Superman titles seemed to be written for younger kids than like the Julius Schwartz titles in a way. I mean, not a whole lot of difference, but like a few years difference. Um, like there was there was more uh, science fiction in the Julius Schwartz titles, but Mort Weisinger basically had almost, Superman almost like Lois is always trying to trap him into marriage, almost like. The girl on the playground is trying to kiss me, but she'll give me cooties, mm-hmm. so I have to get away from her. So, in a way, this modern—you know—we've we've gone beyond the apex of actual mature storytelling in superhero stories, where you could have a couple marry and explore. Well, what's it like for Superman to be married? No, you know, now their idea of romance now is like I'm with Wonder Woman because her boobs are hanging out and she's awesome, you know. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like some, it's like some, uh, you know, it's like they're pandering to that younger crowd, like kind of like they were when they made Lois an idiot that just wanted to do nothing but chase men and try to entrap Superman. I mean, she didn't, she didn't care what she did to him as long as she got him. I mean, there's a story that, that I've got in one of these uh, trade paperbacks where Lois like time travels back to. Uh, Krypton, and she figures, well, I'm never going to get Superman, but I can try to get Jor-El. And so she tries to break up Jor-El and Lara. It's hilarious. And, and at the end, when she comes to the present, I mean, she ends up in the Phantom Zone. It's crazy. It's insane. And, and at the end, she's like, I never realized if this had worked, I'd been Superman's mom. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> way, way to this, think about those consequences, Lois. Right, right. Think, let's think this through next time, Lois. But, you know, it's kind of like now that just popped in my head. I know Mort Weisinger used to poll kids. What would you like to see Superman do? You know, and well, what, what, you know, what do you think about Superman doing this? And, and he'd run it by like he had an advisory board of kids, and <laughs> essentially. 
and it's so it's kind of like you know DC's now got an advisory board of like teenagers or something. And I and my son's a teenager, and I'm, I'm not I'm not meaning to throw all teenagers under the bus. It's not really teenagers. It's what DC thinks teenagers want. Exactly. It's it's not it's it's a bunch of old men thinking what teenagers want because my son reads these comics and he hates most of the new 52 stuff he thinks it's awful but uh well, considering, you considering know, a lot of the old men in question like bob harris and his cronies i think they're the the teenagers they're thinking of are the teenagers from the 1990s basically my generation from the 90s yeah <laughs> It's like all, all the stuff that yeah. we used to sell to the kids who bought the X-Men books in the 90s, we're just going to do the same ideas, and that'll attract the kids today. <laughs> good point, good point, yeah. But, it, but but when you said that, it just it made me – and I think that's that's where you lose – you know, you, you lose that matured Superman and Lois that could make the commitment to one another that he could trust her with the secret identity, that they could work together as a team. I really – enjoyed that during the heyday of the Superman, the what, what I consider my personal golden age of Superman comics after Burn, but during the, the triangle number days of, mm-hmm. of Superman, uh, really before the death of, leading up to the death of Superman. I never felt it was quite the same after he came back, but it was still good stuff. But I mean, like time and time again and, and uh, 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 Panic in the Sky and things like that. That was, that was great. Those were great Superman comics. And, uh, you know, I, I like that Superman-Lois dynamic. And I think one reason was is because we saw that it worked for the Earth-2 Superman. And, uh, you know, we'll get to some stories later. I know we're going to talk about some recommended mm-hmm. stories of, of Superman. But uh, there were some good ones that really showed uh, how that couple worked. And, uh, you know, it's funny to see the, their foundation here and how it how eventually worked out. And later on, Thomas says it was a gradual thing. Well, it's really not. If you read the story, where the it's really a pretty hard switch, but there's a reason for that. Yeah. But um, it's it's a shame that all that's just been. But so much of what made Superman Superman's been swept away. So. <laughs> all right. Let's press on. Let's try and knock out the rest of this summary. On a country road, Butch and his goons run Lois Lane's taxi off the road. They throw Lois in their car and drive off. A little ways down the line, they find Superman standing in the road waiting for them. Butch drives right for Superman, thinking to scare him, but Superman simply leaps over the car at the last minute before chasing them down. Superman grabs the car, lifts it over his head, and shakes it until the goons fall out. He lowers Lois Lane gently to the ground, and then, with a mighty flourish, smashes the front of the car into the ground as Butch and his thugs scurry away. Superman scoops up Butch and leaves him dangling from a telephone pole. Lois says, You're him, aren't you? The one they call Superman. Superman picks her up and carries her back to Metropolis in a couple of great leaps. When he leaves her, he advises her not to print her account of this story. Lois wonders how he knew she was a reporter, and then ignores him by telling her editor, George Taylor, about what happened. Lois is determined to land an interview with Superman, whom she has quickly grown fascinated by, to the detriment of Clark Kent, who comes in to apologize about failing to defend her the night before. Thus we establish this bizarre love triangle, where Clark loves Lois, but won't tell her about his secret identity, Superman, whom Lois favors over Clark. The story ends with a vision of the future, where Superman and Lois find happiness and get married in the 1950s. 
we get another quote from the Encyclopedia Galactica. This Superman, this Lois Lane, both are gone now, the very memory of their existence wiped from the slate of the world which came into being as a result of the crisis on infinite Earths. Yet as long as men thrill to daring deeds, as long as they dream of high adventure and the throwing off of the shackles of mortal limitations, the original Superman who burst upon the startled world in 1938 will live. And that, hopefully, will be for a very long time indeed. And that's Secret Origins Issue 1. Yes. Something I note, when Superman captures Butch and hangs him from the telephone pole... Roy makes a point of mentioning in his caption that Superman is lamenting the lack of challenge he faced in beating up wife beaters and catching gangsters and stopping lynch mobs and sort of saying like, yeah, for the first Superman story, he didn't really have a villain like the ultra humanite or Lex Luthor, but don't worry, those will come out later on. Right. <laughs> One thing I think is interesting is is he has in the famous scene where he you know he's getting ready to crash the car, mm-hmm. like the cover of Action Number One. He they do diverge from Action One. It, you know, in the original, I think it's more or less forgotten she's in the car. Right. You know, it's like <laughs> if, if let's see, let, let me let me. It shows Superman. It should, well, no, it shows Lois coming into his arms when he when he's got the car, but it doesn't specifically. If you're if you're blink, you'll miss it because of the the kind of she crude coloring like, and, she falls and you know, out kind with, of crude artwork. Yeah, she falls out with the others, and it just looks like he kind of catches her at the last minute. But yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, one thing I thought the colorist uh, Gene D'Angelo was the colorist on this one. Uh, he kind of he colored the car. He didn't color it green inside the comic. I mean, why not? That's that car. That car is iconically green. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> Why would you color it otherwise? It's green on the cover. The only thing is, like, the the background in this whole scene is a lot of greens, and maybe to differentiate from the background, but I still think there are other ways of getting around that. You just change the color of the background. Right, right, right. I thought that uh, it was, you know, other than that, it was, you know, of course, very well done, but it's it's pretty much panel for panel from the climax of of action number one, uh, which action number one actually ends with a cliffhanger of, of um, Superman going off on his next case, and he goes to leap out a building and doesn't make it, and it, it ends with him like apparently falling to his death with a man in his heart. So he didn't put that part in. <laughs> no, we just assumed that ended horribly with Superman dying, and then the story was over, and we never saw him again. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, like I said, you know, they say that, that Clark and Lois's relationship gradually changed because in, in Action Number Forty Four. The wizard uh, makes uh, Superman disappear uh, from existence, but in his place, Clark Kent rises, and Clark Kent becomes the crusading reporter in the place of Superman, and becomes his basically his true self minus the superpowers. And Lois falls in love with that Clark Kent, and they start dating very quickly. They're married, and in in that story, it's amazing. Superman is gone for a year. It's, I mean, it's, it's, of course, they could do that. That's one of the great things about Earth, too. They could do that. You know, they could, they could take those chances, and they did it. And, uh, but that Superman story, is that Action 44, is, is a great story. I like that yeah. a lot. Uh, what did you think of the encyclopedia framing uh, 
uh, device in this. I liked it. I felt like it was Roy Thomas's excuse to to include some very bittersweet commentary on what he what I imagine he thought was. I imagine Roy Thomas probably hated the the idea of what Crisis on Infinite Earths was doing. Now I don't know. I could be way way wrong on that, but from everything that I know about his his love for these Golden Age stories and this type of setup, like it just seems like he and Marv Wolfman would have been battling like rabid dogs to to like over what was like that should have been civil war. Like, instead of Iron Man and Captain America in Civil War, it should have been Marv Wolfman and Roy Thomas about the nature of the multiverse. Um, right, so, right. So, yeah, the impression – and maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he was all for it. But I just think, like, the Encyclopedia Galactica bits that bookend this story feel like Roy really just saying, this is what we, this is what we had, this is what we could have had, and in my heart – and hopefully the hearts of true fans, these stories will always be there. Even if the party line is saying we're retconning them and they're not real. They're not canon. Right. So Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think you're right. And from everything I've read um, in in the All-Star Companions, and, and there's a horse and alter ego magazine. Uh, there's a, I think it's issue number 100, which is actually more like a trade paperback versus a magazine. Uh, he goes over his history at DC in the 80s and, and reading between the lines, you essentially get the feeling that I don't think anybody was out to hoodoo Roy Thomas, but over time, the especially with Crisis, the notion of what Crisis was, of course, evolved over time. And at one point, I believe Earth 2 was supposed to be left alone, and then at least the Earth 2 of the past, like the All-Star Squadron, could continue using the Earth 2, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, you know, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, at the last minute, they, they at, the, at the last minute, they pulled them out and said, no, we can't do that, you know. Uh, so, yeah, there probably was. I, I don't think he was a fan, uh, ultimately, although he played along, I think, from what I understand, better, better than a lot of other editors and creators. Uh, he was willing to participate despite his misgivings. Uh, so, you know, he's, he was a real trooper about it, uh, which, you know, uh, says a lot about his professionalism, of course. It, it does. I, yeah. And I, I have no doubt that a lot of that was because of his respect for the creators and his professionalism. I can also imagine maybe some of it had to do with trying to influence things from within, trying to change things from within. If he was at least part of it, maybe he could have had a hand in shaping things that were a bit easier for him to digest. Again, that's just right. pure speculation. I have no idea if that's true. Yeah, well, he was, you know, I think, I don't know if he ever, he was officially, unofficially the Earth 2 editor um, eventually once he came to D.C. I mean, they essentially said, you know, anything Earth 2, uh, you're, it's, we got to go through you, you're the guy, you know, because the, the you know, over, over the history of the comic industry and particularly superhero comics and particularly D.C. comics, there have been the the different times where there's been, the, the fiefdoms of, you know, Mort Weisinger has a Superman camp and Julius Schwartz has this camp. And, and so, you know, uh, Roy Thomas was the Earth 2 guy, which I understand the – he had a, a bit of a problem with some of the stories in uh, 
the DC Comics Presents Whatever Happened to series that Rob and Chag had been covering on yeah. Fire and Water. Uh, because basically they were saying, this is what happened to Robot Man. And, and, and Roy Thomas is like, uh, but I use Robot Man over in All-Star Squadron, and I don't know if I like that. You know, it's, yeah. so, uh, and that's kind of odd because he's kind of, in a way, those were under Julius Schwartz. And so he probably kind of felt like, well, you know, Julius Schwartz is one reason why I'm working in comics. Because, you know, he was a, a fan and mm-hmm. corresponded back and forth with, with Schwartz. And uh, in his early days, and uh, so he, maybe he felt like he couldn't say anything. But yeah, there was definitely kind of a uh, he was the, the 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 shepherd of these characters, but at the same time he was uh, getting dictated uh, what to do with them. And I know that he basically uh, put his hand up and said, "I'll get rid of the JSA. Let me do it." You know, because if anybody had to get rid of them and put them off stage, he wanted to do it. You know, he wanted to be the one that gave them their 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 send off and uh, of course he came up with the Ragnarok cycle thing that they stayed in for what maybe six years <laughs> yeah and they kept cheating it's, and finding ways to use them anyway me personally I have always felt like I, I love Crisis on Infinite Earths the, the series the energy the story itself the artwork the the excitement around it the excitement after it and I love the podcast that, that Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner are doing on Tales of the JSA. But ultimately, I feel like DC lost its identity when they did the crisis, when they lost the multiple Earths. And they've really been kind of scrambling for who they are ever since. That set them apart from Marvel. And in fact, ever since then, slowly, Marvel became the DC of old with all these multiple iterations of their characters running about and now interacting together, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, when Peter Parker is bumping into Miles Morales and then the, the Japanese uh, live action Spider-Man's robots in the Mm. comics. And, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's no different than, you know, Superman bumping into earth Two Superman and Ultraman, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's really it's interesting how they've how they've kind of switched places and you know is it, you can go beyond that and I think when by by collapsing everything onto one timeline in one universe you know DC is trying to streamline them it's trying to make it more accessible and trying to make it more user friendly but it also just homogenized everything and then you lose a lot of the variety and a lot of what made it special and I think. The new 52 was that to the nth degree. Like, mm-hmm. when they were rolling out the the new 52, they were like, okay, we've got our Justice League books, we've got our Dark books, we've got our On the Edge books, and we've got our Young Justice books, and we've got all of these different types of titles to, to sort of attract all of all of the different readers. But they really didn't. They were really all very, very similar tonally like all of the justice books were the same like the flash and aquaman and green lantern yeah they were they were different characters with different adventures but they all felt the same they had the same type of tone and same type of feel and the dark books all all felt the same and then they started to just be incorporated to the point where swamp thing and animal man were just superhero books they were the same as the justice league books they called themselves horror books, and they were just a little bit weirder, but they were still 
it was still Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire writing superhero books with Swamp Thing and Animal Man. So it, it's just, I think that was part of one of the problems with Crisis was just they lost the flavor of being different and being unique and having this variety of characters and universes and things that they could explore. And everything had to conform in the new universe. So Right. Right. Well, it's like, you know, once Infinity Incorporated lost that Earth 2 connection, how are they any different than the Outsiders? And and really, how are they any different than the new Teen Titans? I mean, you know, that, 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 that just, I mean, that Roy Thomas was the guy that took the brunt of the crisis. <laughs> I mean, he really did, yeah. uh, which, which is a shame, which I think was, it kind of makes you wonder if, if this title in a way wasn't a consolation prize for, uh, uh, because of the, uh, what was being done uh, basically to the work he had established with Earth 2. And it's not just him. I mean, you had other writers. Uh, Mike W. Barr uh, wrote some great uh, Earth 2 stories in Brave and the Bold. And then, of course, Alan Brennert uh, wrote some of the absolute best Batman stories ever that involved the Earth 2 characters right before Crisis. I mean, just within a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's really that that that's that's what really kind of bothers me. And, and, and I love Marv Wolfman's, uh, you know, New Teen Titans. I love Crisis, and, and I'm a fan of him in general. I mean, there's been some errors of his stuff I've, I've not liked as well. But in, in, overall, if you know, I've never read a Marv Wolfman comic and just, like, thrown it down and said this was awful. You know, it's always been, you know, solid stuff, unless an editor editor's really just been messing with what he's trying to do. But And I don't want to just blame him personally, but he, you know, he, he takes credit for coming up with the idea for Crisis. Uh, based on some one fan saying, I don't understand all this stuff. You know, we should go back in time and find that guy. Put a tape over his mouth. Give him a good beat and break his letter right in hand or something. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm getting rough here. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the, the, the comics, you know, and we're, we're, getting, we're getting deep now, but we're getting into general comics. But the level of maturity in, in superhero comics I really do feel it was at its its zenith right around the time. I know people point to Watchmen. They point to Dark Knight Returns. But to me, that level of being mature without being adult was achieved right before Crisis. Things like, who is Donna Troy? I mean, would you ever find that comic printed in the New 52? I don't think so. You know, I mean, it's... No, you still have the question, who is Donna Troy, in the New 52, (laughs) but you certainly don't get a story like that. Right. I mean, you know, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne, you know, the the Alan Brennert story with Batman and Catwoman's marriage. You you would not get that nowadays. They might be, they might see him screwing on a rooftop or something, but I mean, you you wouldn't get that touching, mature story, you know. And and the Earth 2 device was a vehicle for the creators to explore those aspects of the characters without damaging them for the kiddies. You know, you it didn't mess up the licensing. It you know, Superman could go back to, you know, being in a love triangle with Lois and and Clark, you know, the, the love triangle could continue, but then occasionally you could come over to Earth 2. And see what it's like when Superman's married to Lois or that Batman has a daughter. And I mean, and, and we were just getting to the point where they could really explore uh, some of the some of the things that in previous generations 
the, because the writers were such fans of the Earth 2 concept and the characters that they think, well, what if we did this? You know, you were you were just getting that probably from like the really from like the the, the All Star Comics relaunch up to Crisis. So really about ten years and sporadically too, because other than All Star Squadron, there wasn't a long running Earth Two series during that time because All Star Comics didn't last that long. So it was just, I always just felt like it was kind of a waste that we didn't get more out of that. They blew up the well before they got all the water out of it, you know. So I filled it in. They filled the well in before they got all the water out of it, or something. I don't. I don't know what the analogy is there, but I, I just uh, over time, the more and more I've thought about it, in the in especially since they've thrown away the post-crisis continuity, I've just thought, man, crisis just uh, wow. I just kind of wish it hadn't happened, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, maybe I'm in the minority. I, I, again, I, I still love it. I still love the event itself, but the rep, the repercussions from it, I, I think eventually, uh, I think you could have got all the benefits from the post-crisis universe with just some injection of, of fresh blood into the titles. You could have got John Byrne, which John Byrne didn't necessarily want to reboot Superman. He was told to, you know, essentially. Uh, so, you know, and you could have got John Byrne on Superman and, and, and kind of did a kryptonite nevermore soft reboot with him. Uh, and, and I think you still would have got the sales out of it that you needed, but you know, at this point I'm just, uh, I'm, you know, chasing, you know, windmills or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I, cause See, I didn't. I didn't read Crisis on Infinite Earths until a couple of years ago. Like, I, I didn't. I didn't read it when it was coming out, so I never had that that connection to it. And because of my my connection with DC Comics was, and those characters is really sort of piecemeal all over the place for a couple of decades. By the time I got to that story, I was equally familiar with pre and post Crisis stories. So I could really kind of approach approach Crisis on Infinite Earths with a level of detachment where I could look at, all right, what is, what is this story on a content level and what is the story on a consequences level? And, yeah, I just, I didn't like the consequences. I didn't like the fallout. I wish, I wish they had kept the multiverse. Like, if I could go back in time, I would have gone back to, like, Justice League of America issue 230 or something and just kept riding the satellite era wave like not have our like aquaman blow up the league and start justice in detroit right <laughs> we can definitely agree on that <laughs> frank screaming at his uh at his uh, podcatcher right now <laughs> uh anyway let's let's talk a little bit about superman in specific and just your your thoughts on the character we've already talked for a while so this doesn't have to be super in-depth but just what do you like about the character how did you discover the character oh the character of superman well i think i came out of the womb knowing who superman was i i can't honestly i can't honestly point to it um i I know i watched of course the super friends uh was on uh the old the george reeves uh tv show was on which uh my mom watched that when she was a kid so she was she was a fan of that and you know when in 1978 when Superman the movie came out, I think that pretty much cemented 
uh, my mania for comics and superheroes in general. Uh, it's still my favorite movie. I'm a fan of just about every version of Superman in one way or another, but there's just something about that Earth, the Earth 2 Superman. I don't know what it was, but I like the Mr. and Mrs. Superman feature. I, I bought the dollar comics. They, they were in the Superman family. I didn't have Action Comics number 484 till years later uh, where they show how they got married, but I, I bought that comic, uh, the, the Justice League crossover we talked about, uh, where you first see George Perez draw the Earth 2 Superman. And then one of the comics that really cemented me on Earth 2 and the um, Earth 2 Superman specifically was the uh, DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1. And oddly enough, that's almost like a prequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths because you are introduced to Alex Luthor and his Lois Lane. Uh, and, of course, those characters are pivotal to the beginning of Crisis on Infinite Earths. They're the, the parents of Alexander Luthor Jr., the person that creates the haven that the Earth 2 Superman and Lois and Superboy Prime go into. But that story, you know, it's basically... You know, it, it's it's your typical crisis level. It's like a JLA JSA team up with just two characters because you've got you've got Ultraman from Earth three, you've got the Luther from Earth three, the the Luthors the from Earth one and Earth two, and but the thing I really enjoyed about it was it, it basically the Earth two Superman's like, why don't you and your Lois get married? You know, he's just basically trying to talk him into it. It's like, hey, you'll love it. It's great. You know, and. Uh, and it really, it really showed how that worked. And it was, I, I don't know, just something about that's just always stuck to me. That's just one of my favorite comics. And uh, I actually wrote an article for, for Back Issue Magazine about the Earth 2 Superman. It's an issue number 62 from a few, from a few years back. And um, when I was researching that, you know, I had quite a few of the appearances, but there were a few here and there I was, I was missing. And so I, I, I did some research of, of his appearances, and I found that he had been in a two-parter with uh, the Earth-1 Superman in Superman Family in the days before the Mr. and Mrs. Superman feature. And that's in Superman Family number 186 and 187. And uh, essentially that story is about the Earth-2 Jimmy Olsen is dying, and he needs an organ but Superman, it, it, long story short, Superman comes upon the notion of if he could replicate that a uh, 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 healthy organ from the Earth-1 Jimmy, then he could bring it to Earth-2 and have it transplanted into his Jimmy and save him. Uh, but along the way, while he's transporting to Earth-2, this almost doomsday-like creature comes with him, and it's unleashed on, I believe it's Earth-1. And this really, there's this really cool, almost super friends like thing where the two Superman actually have to merge <laughs> together and defeat this thing. This story is like, it's like, I feel like I'm the only person that ever read this story because it's never brought up. <laughs> it's like I've, I've found the two copies of this comic in existence because <laughs> I've brought it up a few times. People were like, okay, you know, it's, <laughs> but I, I swear it's printed. It was by Jerry Conway. And drawn by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson inked him in the first one and then Jack Abel in the second. But it was over two issues. But it, what's really interesting is that the two Supermen together destroy this creature. I mean, they kill him. They basically overload him with their heat vision and he explodes. So uh, 
you know, Man of Steel ending, eh, that's <laughs> maybe maybe not so radical, right? Uh, but I thought it was kind of interesting. But uh, th- this ain't the Superman that's like, oh, I've got to go go into a gold kryptonite vault and get rid of my powers now. You know, uh, <laughs> I hate that ending to that story. Uh, I'm sorry, but yeah, but uh, it, it's just a kind of a hidden gem, which I really wish they reprinted somewhere. Which I've they never reprinted it, but it. The Earth One Superman at the end was like, I hope I never have to do that again. I feel like I lost myself. I, you know, you basically the idea was yes, they're almost the same person, but they're not. And uh, if anybody can track that down, I don't think those Superman family comics go for a whole lot. Uh, and when I know one of them, at least one, I think both issues got covers by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his, his name. name. They are Superman family. Uh, 186 and 187. They're from November, December 1977 and January, February 1978. They are during the dollar comic era. They're hit, they're kind of hidden gems. Uh, I think everybody knows about Action 484 and DC Comics Annual Presents number one. But uh, that's kind of that's uh, it, unfortunately Earth 2 Superman. I, well, I mean, he had a regular feature in the, the Mr. and Mrs. Superman, but other than that, you know. We didn't see him a whole lot outside of the occasional team up with the Earth One Superman and then the the JSA adventures, uh, which I could have taken a whole series. You know, they could have if they'd given him you know one of Superman's titles, I'd been perfectly happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> There's one Superman story that I kind of wanted to, to plug and mention um, for listeners. It's a it's a more modern story. It came out in the mid or late 2000s. It was originally published in Superman Confidential in like 2007, 2008, maybe. Um, and it's been collected in the trade paperback Superman Kryptonite. It's written by Darwin Cook with art by Tim Sale, one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite comic book artists. Uh, and it's just, I, I love to push that on more readers. It's it's retelling and reimagining Superman's first ex- um, first encounter with Kryptonite, um, and you see Superman at the beginning very insecure because he doesn't know if he has any weaknesses, if he has any vulnerabilities. And instead of being really uber cocky and confident about that, he's much more he's a little bit nervous. He's like, I don't know if I fly into this volcano if I'll be able to come out okay. Mm. But beyond that, just between Darwin Cook's script and Tim Sale's art, it has a very flashy kind of art deco, almost in the style of the animated series, but a little bit different. But it still has this sort of timelessness and classic feel to it. Um, so I highly recommend that. You can find the paper, the trade paperback for that, Superman Kryptonite. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to look that up because I'm... I, I'll be honest. I will admit I have a little – I have to get into Tim Sale. I have to – I, I'm not a huge fan of his artwork on its own, mm-hmm. but when I read the stories he illustrates, once I'm into it, I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate his his storytelling, uh, but just just visually only, his style and me just don't quite match up. But you know, once I'm into it, I, I enjoy it. And Darwin Cook, I, I just love his stuff you know in the, in the new frontier you you get you kind of got the earth to superman uh back you know uh yeah. in a lot of ways the very fleischery uh superman so that was that was definitely cool before we go did you have any last comments or thoughts about this issue in particular of secret origins 
Oh, I, I just I, I thought this was a, a great way to get started. I mean, uh, starting with Superman, of course, that's that's kind of a no brainer. But to get Wayne Boring back, and uh, you know, I really I really have to say his art's just really impressive. I mean, the the guy had to be up in his years pretty good. And and we've all you know, unfortunately, and as a as as a as an artist myself, I mean, I'm no Wayne Boring, but you, you kind of hate to think about it. But we've all seen some of our favorite artists you know, their work kind of deteriorate over time. Yep. And uh, you're not seeing any of that here. I know Ordway's inking him, uh, but I don't think Ordway had to ink him. You know what I mean? Yeah. He, they didn't need the young guy to to clean it up or make it appealing. It would have worked. It works better with Ordway, but if you'd even put like a Joe Giella or, or even Vince Coletta on this, as long as he didn't erase everything, I think it would have worked. Uh, I think the script is, uh, you know, I, I, I do have a little bit. I, I kind of wish uh, Thomas wasn't so slavishly following Superman one slash action one. I wish we got a, a little bit more of of the later retellings of the origin in there, especially the Paul Kent uh, deathbed scene. But other than that, uh, I really think it's a, just a, a, a real solid start and a nice send off for the Earth to Superman. It is. It is a very much a love letter, and you get that in the art. Um, I agree. I wish Roy Thomas, I think he was a little bit too protective of the original work and just just didn't, didn't have it in him to sort of take chances and kind of break away and tell his version of the story. It just had to be the original story. But other than that, yeah, it's a great kickoff to the series. It it feels all at once classical and respectful of the old old guard, the origin stories, this this golden age story from uh, the Superman of Earth Two, but it also feels accessible and energetic. And I think, yeah, it, it is amazing how Wayne Boring captures that in the pencils. And I think Ordway does definitely help bring that out. But the sense of energy that is still in this story. Very different from what you would see in the Superman comics coming out right after the crisis, but still a lot of fun. Yep. Chris, was there any other notes about Secret Origins that you wanted to mention? I know they've they've done a, like a, a Secret Origins series in the New Fifty Two, but uh, you know it's probably one of the other than a few experiments here experiments here and there. It was one of the last anthology type books where you didn't know what character you were going to get month to month. Uh, it's just something you just don't see anymore, and and you know it's definitely something that was probably more uh, you know viable on the newsstand, or at least that's probably the the popular thinking. But uh, I really enjoyed the series as a whole, and uh, the Golden Age stories were particularly interesting because you know you met a lot of characters, and I mean I knew a lot of them, but I had no idea what their backstory was. You know you right. you, you didn't have access, you had no Wikipedia. You know, you didn't. There was no internet. I mean, unless you found some old fanzines, uh, alter ego or something. You know, it wasn't even being published at the time. You weren't going to find out the backstory of the the Golden Age Hawkman, or you know, I mean, you might find the Who's Who entry, but as far as being fleshed out, good luck. You know, so it it really did do a good job of of uh, filling in some of those blanks, and I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, and it's. It's interesting with all with the variety of creators on board other than Roy Thomas. I mean, the, the quality of the issue could vary wildly from, from book to book. But you also, I mean, 
readers were sure to find a lot of surprises in this series, characters that they might never have heard of or might never really have any familiarity with. And if that story was just particularly well-written, that might have just really hooked somebody, and you might have had... Um, you might have had a, a long-time reader just hooked on a character who just fell in love with, with a concept based on one of these stories. And right. like you said, I, I don't think that has happened like that since. I can't imagine a time where just uh, uh, new readers would be introduced to new characters and new ideas in this way. Right. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of like the uh, – it went the way of the Dodo, like the uh, team-up title. You know, the team-up title was a great way, the Brave and the Bolds, the right. the DC Presents, the Marvel team-ups, to introduce, you know, the other characters through a gateway character that everybody knew. You know, right. through your right. Batman, Superman, uh, Spider-Man. So Secret Origins, you know, under the banner of, here's the backstory of this guy. You know, I mean, so, I mean, you know, you even had, not to steal the thunder of, of one of your future guests, but you had the Crimson Avenger spin out of this into a miniseries. Right, right. So, I mean, it actually, apparently that worked, you know, yep, so, yep. so, uh, so, you know, it was, it was really great to see. And unfortunately, well, even, even Blue Beetle, um, right. his, his, his series started the month after his secret origin appearance. Right. And they used that to, uh, and they used it for like the suicide squad mm-hmm. when they were launching that out of legends and the doom patrol when they were bringing them back and, and they definitely use it as a springboard. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was, uh, it really was a, you know, it was kind of a, uh, a marketing tool for DC to a point they could, they, they could take that book and, you know, rather nowadays they put, you know, four different miniseries out to tie into, to an event or something, but like millennium comes out and they have an issue with the guardians and the floronic man and, and the man, the history of the man hunters, you know, they didn't have to do a miniseries about that. They could plug it into secret origins yep. and there's nothing like that that exists nowadays that I know of. So no. And it's, and you mentioned earlier, you know, this was the days before Wikipedia. I mean, the, all of that information has been chronicled in, to such detail by first by fanzines and other databases like that. But now just on, on the internet, like I've had arguments with like friends of like other franchises, like, uh, with GI Joe, um, mm-hmm. GI Joe put out their Order of Battle miniseries, which was basically yes. their version of the Ohatmu, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, mm-hmm. or to a lesser extent, um, who's who. But the Order of Battle, you know, it's it's terribly dated. It came out in the mid '80s, and the fans are like, "Oh yeah, the, the the company that has the rights to publish GI Joe comics now, which is IDW, they're like they need to redo that. They need to republish a new Order of Battle that's updated." And I come back at it and say. Okay, I'm a huge G.I. Joe fan. I still collect the comics that they're pushing now. I'm not going to pay $4 for one of those things because all of that information I can get for free online. Right. <laughs> it's like, if, if it's just telling me the history of this character's appearances, there are 20 websites that I can bookmark in a second that I can just visit anytime to get all of that information. I don't need right. to pay for that information. So I do think these those sort of catalog books like Who's Who – and the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. I don't. I don't imagine we will ever get something like that again. I mean, they, the the companies have their own wiki pages for that, right? You know, it's and and Rob and Shag have brought that up on the Who's Who podcast. It's kind of it's kind of a, an idea that's unfortunately the internet kind of trumps it, you know. And uh, 
Um, and it's kind of <laughs> on the order of battle. If I remember right, those were actually just – they were basically reprinting the text from the file cards. Yes, so uh, most of them were. I would say most of them were. Yeah, so a few you, of them they put a little bit more TLC into, but some of them not so much. Right, yeah. So I, I remember Rocky Balboa. Was yes, <laughs> the, the apocryphal one. They, they included Rocky Balboa because for a time they thought he was going to be a G.I. Joe, yep. which – I cannot fathom – okay, they were talking to Sylvester Stallone. They were negotiating a deal with him mm-hmm. to get his likeness for that character. Yeah. If you're going to make a, Celest- a Sylvester Stallone movie into a G.I. Joe character, <laughs> I'm just going to th- throw this out here and it may sound crazy. I would probably lean towards Rambo before Rocky. Well, Rambo had his own toy line though, he, see? He did. He did, but still, it's <laughs> – he had the Coleco, whatever. I think that's who made it. Yeah. So I guess maybe it was sewn up. So maybe they thought, well, we'll go get Rocky. You know, so it was no holds barred. Not you know, I mean, or I don't know what was the name. Over the top. Over, over the, the top. top. Yeah. Sorry, over the top. Over the top was uh, was sewn up by uh, Archie or, yeah. or somebody. <laughs> How did they never make toys of Tango and Cash? Sylvester oh, Stallone and Kurt Russell. You could have got your Terry Hatcher. She was in Tango and Cash. Oh yeah, she was. <laughs> that was the first time I saw her. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> back to Lois Lane. Hey, there you go. <laughs> it, all, it all comes back. So. Um, okay. Aside from this wonderful, fun-filled episode that we've just had, where can our listeners find you online? Well, they can find me at the Supermates podcast that I host with my wife, Cindy, as you said. That is available at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. Or you can find me on the Power Records episodes of the Fire and Water podcast that come up occasionally. That you can go through to AquamanShrine.net or FirestormFan.com or to PowerRecord.blogspot.com and or in iTunes and find the show there. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you for being part of this first episode of the Secret Origins podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Ryan. It was a pleasure to be here and, and to be asked on the inaugural episode, too. It was uh it was uh, quite a quite a treat, and uh, you know, anytime I get the chance to talk about specifically the Earth Two Superman, I'm I'm happy to do it. And and good luck to you on the show. I think this is a that's a great idea for a show, and I think you'll uh, do great things with it. Thank you very much, man. Looking forward to having you back in the future. I'm looking forward to coming back. So, you've heard the secret origin of Superman, and you've heard the secret origin of this comic book series. It's time I tell you the secret origin of this show. I've mentioned on other podcasts how I was inspired by Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag, first to create just a fan blog of my own dedicated to Black Canary, and then to start a podcast after listening to hundreds of episodes of the Fire and Water podcast that they co-host. Those guys received so much feedback early on from myself and other bloggers and fans that they really, truly created a community. And the best part about their show was that every once in a while, they would reward the community with guest appearances. Maybe it was Chris joining Rob on the Power Records episode, or Siskoid teaming up with Shag to talk about role-playing games, or Diablo Frank coming aboard to recount the end of the satellite-era Justice League. Those episodes felt very special because they felt inclusive. I admit to being envious of the guys who got to appear on Fire and Water, and I also got the impression that I wasn't alone. 
I started thinking that if I did my own podcast, I would reach out to other members of the community to appear as guest hosts on my own show. That, however, would mean finding material that lots of different fans could speak with authority on and have a vested interest in. Well, Rob and Shag were already covering who's who, whatever happened to, and the best, zaniest issues of The Brave and the Bold. So I went with the next best anthology series that I was familiar with, this volume of Secret Origins. I didn't collect the book when it was coming out. The issues came to me out of sequence and in random purchases over the course of the last 20 years. I probably got five or six of them during the 90s, still years after the book was cancelled, and then a dozen or so more when I started vigorously reading and studying the DC Universe. About a year ago, I was at a comic convention in Manchester, New Hampshire, when I found about half of the series bundled together on sale. I couldn't pass it up, and after that, I started tracking down the last issues I needed to collect the set. Still, the questions remained. If I even started a podcast, could I organize such an assorted cast of guests to celebrate their beloved characters every week? And would the community I so cherish feel the same excitement for the project that I did? Well, the last question was answered swiftly. Even as I was coming up with a Secret Origins idea, Rob and Shag invited me to take part in their milestone 100th episode of the Fire and Water podcast. Not just me, either, but a dozen guests, and the episode was amazing. It was a celebration of more than just one awesome comic, more than even the Fire and Water podcast. It celebrated all of us who listened to the show. That was all the evidence I needed that my idea, conceptually at least, could work. As for the organizing part, well, it's ambitious and daunting and scary. But every time I ask somebody if he or she wants to be part of this show, they always come back with an enthusiastic yes. Except for J. David Weeder, who hasn't responded to any of my emails, but whatever. I am so excited for this podcast. I'm excited to talk to new fans and friends about characters we love, like Batman and Hawkman and Martian Manhunter and Dr. Midnight and so many others, like, um, like Dollman and Johnny Thunder and the the other Johnny Thunder and that Legionnaire who died. Yeah. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. Feedback for this show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or the username Count Dracula. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. And to quote you too, they say a secret is something you tell one other person. So I'm telling you, child.